Okay. So I will start by opening up questions from John. Then I know that there was no ABF for me to let you guys ask questions last week on temptation. And then two weeks before that, we canceled ABF um, with a crown of life. So I get recognized that there's really three works, three weeks worth of material that you guys can fire at me. I think I'm ready. And somehow we'll be out here like probably 10 minutes early because you guys won't ask anything. All the question askers went in the other room. I'm telling you. Yes. 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 They received in John's gospel immediately. Um, it's it's possible, but what happens? What doesn't happen is the signs, the wonders, the um, the the speaking in tongues, the tongues of fire. So. It seems evident that the, the apostles are functioning in a, in a wisdom from God prior to Acts 2. Acts 2 is when God uses the preaching of Peter to, um, to form the first generation of the church, and that comes down. So, no, I think based on John's account, it's conceivable he gave them the Spirit. Because in the Old Covenant, the Spirit would come and go. The Spirit would come upon someone, not come upon them. It's possible that's what Jesus does here. It's hard to know, but I think given his setup in John 15 and 16, when he comes, when the Helper comes, I think John would have us understand that's who we're talking about. If that's the case, then no, I think they receive the Holy Spirit then and there. And what happens at Pentecost is a showy attention, a sign and the rest of the disciples receiving as well, because there, there's more gathered on that rooftop than just the 12 in Acts 2. No, good question. Uh, I wouldn't want to be dogmatic with it, but I, I think that we're to understand what he's doing there as the completion of what he sets up in 13 through 16. Um, so that's, that's my thinking. I mean, if anyone wants to... No? Okay. Other questions, thoughts? We'll start keeping it on, on John. Yes? A mic- microphone, we need the. Who's going to pass the microphone around? I have the loudest voice of anyone who's talked so far. And anyone listening to the podcast will still not know what your question is. <laughs> the, the eight people who listen to the podcast. Thank you. Seven. Okay. Uh, Seven. A <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. little background on this question. Uh, when I was in college, I took an Old Testament Bible class um, that was taught by an atheist. And uh, it was a very difficult class. The, the room was split about 50-50 on people who believed in the Bible and people who mm. were just trying to disprove it. Yeah. Um, we talked about prophecy a lot. Yeah, yeah. And pretty much the, it, <clears throat> the, the side who was trying to disprove the Bible would constantly bring up things like, oh, yes, this prophecy appears to be fulfilled, but they really just put that prophecy in there afterwards after it already happened, so it looked like a prophecy. And to yeah. me, that's that's a super weak argument. Yeah. Um, however, um, today we talked about two different kinds of prophecies as far as I can see them in the Bible. One is the Old Testament, or, or some prophecy is made, and it is fulfilled sort of naturally. I don't know how to say that exactly. Um, uh, like... Jesus's bones won't be broken when he's on the cross. That's something that that is a prophecy that f- was fulfilled. Yeah. And then we have the today sort of prophecy where um, Jesus went and found a cult yeah. and sat on it. Yeah. That kind of prophecy doesn't 
seem to have enough a, a ton of weight for me sure can no, you can you tell me why I'm wrong there? You're not. No, no, you're not. That's easy to fake, right? I mean, in other words, the prophecy that's most compelling apologetically. Is, is it, so some prophecy is simply to encourage. If you believe the Bible is word of God, if you if you're already sold on other grounds, then Zechariah's prophecy is is encouraging. Zechariah's prophecy, as it's fulfilled, has very little apologetic value, because Jesus is so plainly knows that prophecy, and then does that, it's, it's not particularly impressive as a persuasive argument. But not all prophecies are of that sort, right? So Jesus can't pick where he's going to be born, right? So that's a little... And so differing prophecies are of differing persuasive power. Not all prophecies meant to do that specifically, to be persuasive power. Um, so... Probably the most notable one is in Isaiah naming Cyrus. I mean, that's, that's the Babe Ruth moment where hundreds of years before Cyrus is born, we're not just speaking about somebody who will come, but I call Cyrus my servant. I mean, that's probably the most, like, that's impressive because we can date copies of Isaiah prior to, like, yeah. Um, but no, not all prophecies are equally um, persuasive and super, obviously supernatural in that sense. Every year, thousands of people are born in Bethlehem, right? So the fact that somebody, it's, it's not as impressive. When you're looking at the whole Bible as a whole and add it all up, the picture it paints, I think, is an impressive, unified picture. But no, not, not all prophecies are equally miraculous. Not all prophecies are equally unexplainable. Some could be explained quite naturally. No, I, I was watching a debate with uh, um, Christopher, the late Christopher Hitchens and Doug Wilson, and, and Hitchens brought that one up. Yeah, he's found the donkey, and, and, and was like, yeah, sure, fair enough. He also predicted in three days I'll rise from the grave, and he did that one too. That one tends to be... and No, but that's why the resurrection is viewed in the, by the New Testament as the most persuasive sign. He, he predicted his own death. I mean, so John, we even saw that he said this. To, John wants you to know, Jesus called that shot before it happened, how he was going to die, and that three days later he had rise from the grave. Now, that is supposed to be the most compelling the most persuasive prophetic fulfillment. And I, I think that holds up in that sense. But no, not all prophecies are equally impressive from a how did that happen standpoint, you know? Um, and that, as I think about it now, too, I mean, maybe um, Jesus' selection of that cult isn't for us. Because, yeah, maybe it's not super uh, pers- persuasive to us. Yeah. But for those people seeing it at the time who knew the prophecy about the cult, and and now Jesus is saying, "Hey guys, it's me." Well, and I'm a different type factor. This def- what I like to think of is Jesus doesn't do this in John's gospel, in Matthew's gospel, and even in Luke. He's always saying, "Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear." Right. So Jesus is teaching at a level for the crowds, but there's always a bit that he's saying for the people who can get it. Right. And I like to think I didn't make a big point of this in the sermon because I'm sort of filling blanks in. I like to think. Jesus' response to them with the cult is, some of you guys are getting it, and I want to remind you there are different types of kings, and then there are kings. There are warrior kings, and there's meek, humble kings on donkeys. I want to remind you of other messianic prophecies that don't involve a triumphing, victorious warrior. You know, right? And so I like to think in some sense it's kind of counterbalancing for those who have ears to hear and eyes to see, for those who get it, for those who make that connection. We want the king who wins in battle, Psalm 118. Yeah, I'm Zechariah 9, meek and humble on a donkey. I like to think he's doing that even for those people there. Most of the people in the audience miss it, at least miss it then. Um, we don't know what happens to them later. 
But uh, no, no, but don't, don't be embarrassed to say not all prophetic fulfillment is equally impressive from a how did that happen standpoint. No, no, it's not, right? Um, but that also doesn't mean just because some are less impressive, there aren't some really impressive cases. But the resurrection, the crucifixion and resurrection, Jesus calling that one specifically and multiple times. I got to be handed over to the Jews. They'll hand me over to the Romans. They'll put me to death. I'll be crucified. I'll be lifted up. When I'm li- I mean, he's, he's, he's all over it in the gospel accounts. But f- no, fair enough. When you know something's written, the Messiah will ride on a donkey. Hey, I'm going to go ride on a donkey. That, humanly speaking, no one's, an unbeliever will not be persuaded by that because it could be so, e- so easily faked. Fair enough. Yeah, I could sure. go grab a donkey and ride into Jerusalem now and start right. making claims. That's right. I'm not going to. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay, other questions? No, I mean, good question. And we, don't be afraid to admit this stuff. Not all prophecy is equally impressive from that standpoint. I think it's impressive just in the way the whole Bible tells the same story. I think it's impressive in how, you know, a book that probably most people aren't terribly concerned with, Zechariah, is being thought of by Jesus and interwoven, how Jesus is making sure all of it's fulfilled in him. So it's not even just he's doing it for their sake. The Messiah needs to ride in on a donkey because the scripture predicted it. So Jesus needs to make sure that happens. I think that's pretty impressive. But no, I wouldn't take that to a dumb believer and say, let me show you why you should believe in Jesus. I mean, it's scripture, I would. All scripture is powerful. But I wouldn't, if I could pick which prophecy I would point to for persuasive power, that wouldn't be it. Fair enough. Okay, next question. Anything else from John at all? Microphone, microphone. I missed a blank. Yes. That's A conquering king. And I was just trying to highlight from Psalm 118 that I, in the help of the Lord, I cut them up. They want this king who defeats his enemies. They want a king who... And a king who defeats his enemies and can raise his fallen soldiers? <laughs> yeah. Um, that, that's a king you'll go sign up for. And so that, that's particularly why the Lazarus miracle, I think, is getting so much buzz, is... How do, you, how, do you defeat a, how do you defeat a king who can raise his fallen army up as you strike them down? That, that's a king who's going to win a battle. Um, they start getting thrown for a loop when Jesus talks about how he won't always be there. Well, the Messiah is always here, Jesus. I mean, but yeah, yeah. Um, Jeremy again. All right. You keep it going, Jeremy. That's fine. I've missed being here. I really did. I've missed you being here too, man. <clears throat> um. Uh, we took an aside talking about the um, it not being Jesus's time yet. The, yeah. the hour had not approached, yeah. um, and probably the first half or more of the instances where you talked about that, Jesus is saying it's not time yet. I I need to do something different than what you guys want. Yeah. But then the last half were things didn't happen to Jesus because it wasn't time yet. Mm-hmm. Like the the guards didn't approach him because yeah. it wasn't time yet. Yeah. So that seems to be uh, Jesus at the beginning saying, I need to act differently. And at the end, it seems to be more of like a supernatural, God didn't allow this to happen because it wasn't time yet. So, well, so why was it so important for Jesus to change his earthly ministry if, if in the later stages of this, God was just going to make sure it happens in his timing anyway? I think, uh, no, that's a great question. I mean, it's similar to if God's sovereign, why pray? Um, Similar in kind, right? I mean, if God's in control, why do he doesn't need my advice? He's got a better plan than I do, right? Um, I think, t- turn to John 5. 
John's gospel will probably, almost certainly be the next gospel we go through, and it'll probably be in the next year or so. I, I love John's gospel. And John's gospel is, is, is fantastic, and the language is simple, the theology is deep. Go to John 5. I think John is highlighting, here'd be my short answer, based on what Jesus says in John 5, and the fact that the first occurrence of that example, what you're saying, doesn't occur to seven. That's where the first time we hear it wasn't his hour, so something couldn't happen to him. In five, Jesus is going to, well, let me just show you. Jesus is going to insist that he and his father, there's no conflict, they're in perfect concert. And so then I think it's perfectly fitting for John to show Jesus' interest and concern about time is perfectly in keeping with his father's. They're of one mind, one accord. Jesus is being attentive to it, the father's being attentive to it, and it works out that way. Um, so John 5, this is, this is an amazing passage. I think we've looked at this in, in the weeks before. But really briefly, Jesus picks a fight with the Pharisees and then intentionally, intentionally in, makes it more intense than it otherwise would have been. Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath, and he gives an answer in chapter 7 that he doesn't give here. In chapter 7, talking about the same incident, he says, hey, the law of Moses says you're not to work on the Sabbath, but if you're also to circumcise on the eighth day, if the eighth day is the Sabbath, guess what? The priest works. He, he does the circumcision. So if you can recognize that there can be some things in the law that are of greater importance than the Sabbath, that there's a, there can be a weighting of laws, how much more so is it appropriate for me to heal a whole man's body on the Sabbath? In other words, Jesus' argument is, I'm not breaking the Sabbath, guys. Come on. Right? He does not give that answer here. If Jesus gave that answer here, no one would be trying to kill him. The Pharisees might be grumbling and not liking him. Jesus is, in chapter 5, he's going to turn the Pharisees up to kill volume level. And he's going to do it with one statement. So, um, look at chapter 5, verse uh, 15. The man went away and told the Jews it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So their response to him healing a man on the Sabbath is to persecute him. You're about to see them go to kill, want to kill him. Jesus makes one statement. Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. That is a bold declaration. So one answer Jesus can give for why it's right and righteous of him to heal the man on the Sabbath in chapter 7 is because technically it's not really breaking the law. Here the answer is, hey, my father works on the Sabbath and I work too. Whatever rights God has, I have. I claim divine prerogative. And they understand it to mean exactly that. Look at verse 18. This is why the Jews are seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. They get that the nature of the argument is equality. He, he works on Sabbath and that's okay? Me too. And so what follows in the discourse is Jesus going back and forth, trying to guard against two errors. He's going to guard against the error that he's inferior to the Father, that he's less than God, or he's little g God. Um, He's going to guard against that. He wants to make it, no, 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 no. I am equal with the Father. Yet, he wants to make it clear he is not in, in any way competition to, that his will is perfectly submissive and perfectly aligned under the Father. So those are the two extreme edges he wants to guard against. He wants to guard against polytheism, and he wants to guard against what we'd later be called Arianism, the doctrine that Jesus isn't capital G God. He's going to guard against both of those errors. 
And so you'll see statements he makes guard against both. He's going to cover both sides. So read forward. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing on his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. Which just fell. Oh, sorry. Um, so there's a statement of against the polytheism side. It's not that I'm in competition to. But then, whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. Full deity statement. Because we're going to see Jesus means whatever, like creating the world, giving life. Jesus means the whole kit and caboodle. So you and I can be like God. So Jesus can say, blessed are the peacemakers, they're, they're sons of God. And to the degree you make peace, you show that you're of God's family. It's the family resemblance, right? Here, Jesus means it absolutely. Whatever I see the Father doing, I do. And by the end of this, this statement, this speech, it'll be clear he means whatever. And so one who can do everything God can do must be God. Capital G, right? So this is what he's going back and forth. Um, Verse 20, the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. The father gives a full disclosure of himself to the son. God has revealed himself to us in his word. He has not revealed himself fully. The the Bible does not fully reveal God. It magnificently, wondrously, greatly reveals God. But to the son alone, we see the father loves the son and shows him all all that he is doing. And again, we're, the, the father-son language in the, in the first century is not, for, we, we tend to think of it primarily in genetic CSI categories, you know, Maury Povich, you know, you're the father, you know, or not. Here, it's, it's the family trade, like father, like son. And so the picture here is a father who shows his son the family business, whether, you know, whether you're a carpenter, whether you're a, whether you're a, a, a farmer, whatever. He sh- you're showing your son everything you do. And the kid grows up, and he takes over the family farm, whatever, and he does everything. That's, that's the type of imagery Jesus is drawing on. So I only do what I see my father doing, but guess what? The father's shown me everything he does. So if I do everything I see the father do, and I see everything the father does, and then if I then in turn do everything the father that I see him do, guess what? This is the basis on which Jesus can say, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. Because Jesus is insisting I imitate and reflect my father plus or minus nothing. I do nothing of my own accord and everything I see I do and he's shown everything he does to me. And so there's really, this is one of the most, probably the deepest and most um, significant passages in the Bible on the doctrine of the Trinity um, because this is the basis on which you have the full equality and yet n- not any conflict between the first and second members of the Trinity. And so keep going. Um, and greater works than these will show them so that you may not marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, so also the Son gives life to me. So when Jesus says, everything I see my Father do, he means it. And bear in mind, Lazarus is just a few chapters ahead. Jesus means everything. Uh, the Father judges no one, but he's given all judgment to the Son. Okay? So that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. The Father wants the Son to be honored just as much as the Father. Jesus is equally glorious, equally worthy of praise. So back and forth, Jesus guards against, don't think I'm in competition, don't think I'm raising myself up as another God, don't think I'm inferior or less than him. That's what Jesus is doing here. Um, and I'll stop going through this right now. 
after that, it makes perfect sense in my mind why John might show the Father's will and purposes are perfectly in line with the Son's. The Son's concerned about the hour, and the Father's concerned about the hour. That, that, that would be my, my answer. John wants to highlight the uh, union of wills and purposes. Jesus' concern and his attention is precisely to the things the Father is attentive to and concerned about. That would be my answer. Um, so it would be more to highlight both of them are acting, both of them are concerned, both of them are taking measures. Sometimes it's the Father, miraculously, they just can't lay hands on him. But it's not as though Jesus being cavalier, he knows the timing matters to his Father and his Father's purposes, so he's attentive to it as well, like a good son should. That makes sense? Okay. Any other questions or thoughts with that? Okay, we can stay, you can still ask questions on John. Now I'll open it up to questions on temptation and, and uh, James. Oh, Natalie. Okay, last week I think you said you can be, it's not sinful to be tempted. Yes. But it's indulging the temptation that is sinful. Yes. Can you give an example of that? Because I don't quite understand. Jesus was tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. He didn't sin, he was tempted. But okay, here's besides the idea, but, Jesus, but, for us. <laughs> but I also did say our temptation can be an evidence of our sinfulness. So let me, let me, let me try to clarify more what I was trying to get at there. Some t- there's two ways we can be tempted to, do, to sin. Sometimes the object we desire is wicked, right? I want men's praise. I want to fornicate outside of marriage. I want uh, to be drunk, whatever it might be, right? Like, I want a wicked object, if I want a wicked object, only indwelling sin within me could tempt me to want a wicked object. Nothing good in me wants that. Other times, I want something good, like, say, Jesus wanting food in the wilderness. His body is hungering and thirsting for that food. The twist is, do it in defiance to your Father's will. Do it against the Spirit, we're told explicitly, sent him into the wilderness to be tested. Right? So the Father says, now's the time for testing Jesus. For Jesus to say, no, now's the time for some food, is... To to conflict but the pull of the desire for food i can think righteously is there jesus body hungering and thirsting for bread and what he says what's more important than that is man doesn't live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the father i i value more the sustenance i get from my father and his will than i do bread but that doesn't mean he didn't really want bread so jesus can be tempted he can desire a righteous or right object and the devil's temptations are all righteous good objects out of getting them the wrong way. So the temptation to be thrown from the temple roof is about public vindication. Jesus has to wait to be vindicated. He gets vindicated at the resurrection. Up until the resurrection, they're going to call him a murderer. They're going to, he was, uh, Isaiah 53, he was, he was buried with the, he's going to be crucified like the scum of the earth. He is not going to be heralded as the Lord of glory. There's this brief moment on Palm Sunday, but very quickly the crowd sour and they, they treat him like a common criminal. He wants to be vindicated. And the devil's saying, why not vindicate yourself now? It's similar to what his mother and his brothers are saying, really. Work such a great and powerful miracle, public display, angels catching you. It'll end all dispute. It'll end all debate. That's not the plan. But the desire to be vindicated, we, even in the Psalms we see, oh, vindicate me, God. You see Psalmist crying. That's a good thing he wants. You got the wrong way. And then finally, all the kingdoms of the earth. What does Jesus receive at the resurrection? 
And what's he come back to claim in Revelation chapter 19 and 20? All the kingdoms. Does he want all the kingdoms of the earth? Yes, he does. You can have him without a cross. Just worship me, Satan says. So in every instance, Satan's carrot, I think, is, has real appeal to Jesus. The things offered, Satan's not stupid. He picks things he knows our Lord desires. And the twist is, you can have this good thing the wrong way. You can have this good thing through an illegitimate means. So being, having desire does not mean you've sinned. James makes it clear. Sin, desire, once it's conceived, gives birth to sin. Which means um, if I am being tempted, uh, the thought occurs in my head, I wonder if people thought my sermon today was good. How my will responds to that thought determines whether I'm going to sin or not. I have not sinned yet. If my will's like, yeah, I do wonder. I wonder. Once my will gives it the thumbs up, once my will engages, that union is fertile. It's fecund. Sin comes out of it, right? If my response is, no, why am I... Th- if, if I respond in abhorrence, pushing back, God help, I haven't sinned. James is clear on that. Desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. So if you just have desire and you respond to desire righteously, I mean, we see Jesus as a model for this. You know, Get behind me, Satan, right? So no, you don't have to go to the cross. He doesn't entertain that for a second. Get behind me, <laughs> Satan. That, that's the type of response time you need. I'm not saying you sit there sort of toying, maybe I will, maybe, yeah, you, you're, you're too late, you're toast. Um, but if you can respond to temptation like Jesus, you haven't sinned. James is clear on that point. Now, like I said, it could be an evidence of indwelling sin. If, if I want to get drunk or if I want to, uh, you know, pour out my wrath on somebody I'm angry at, that's an evidence that I'm a sinful person. <laughs> Because if I wasn't a sinful person, I wouldn't desire that. But I could be tempted with other things that aren't fundamentally wrong, like Jesus was, and it's about the timing and, and the place. In which case, um, again, you don't sin till till your will unites with it. Does that make any more sense? Yeah. What I was trying to get at. Yeah. The, the reason why I want to say that, and where this gets into debate in the modern Christian circles, is on the issue of homosexuality. That's the debate. Is temptation along those lines itself sinful? And that's where I'd say, if you weren't a sinner, you couldn't be tempted that way. So in one sense, it is evidence of your sinfulness. To the same degree that my temptations for people to praise me and my temptations to pour my wrath out on my enemies is an evidence of my sinfulness. But James is clear. Desire when it's conceived gives birth to sin. So you got to do, what do you, what do you do? The desire itself is insufficient to say sin. You got, what'd you do to it? How'd you respond? Did that desire conceive? And still long before you ever act on it, once your will is like, okay, you know, then yeah, you sinned. Absolutely. But it also means you can struggle with a temptation all your life. And you could, in theory, if you're responding righteously at every point, not sin. We have to be able to say that as well. You know, we, we don't want to go beyond what's written. That's practically what this comes up is a lot is some there's a debate is is same sex attraction itself sinful? Well, it's a temptation to something sinful. Absolutely. It would. It's an evidence of indwelling sin. Absolutely. I can't see how you can say the temptation itself is sinful based on James. I, I don't see how you can get around James. So I don't want to be more godly than God and I don't want to be more holy than the Bible. And so <laughs> that's what it says. But that's practically where the debate comes up most of the time, uh, is on that. Do you want to go any further with that, or is no, that, that what you're trying to look at? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Sarah. 
through their skinny eyes. Okay, I just wanted some clarification on the temptation thing. Yes. So I think I know what you mean, but uh, when you're talking about sins that are like within some person, so like being prideful or wanting the praise of man, um, having the thought of I want this thing isn't a sin until you start embracing it and saying, yeah, I do want this. This is a good thing. Right. And okay. and, and the way and the how. I mean, so... The word in James is epithumia, strong desire. And epithumias frequently are sinful, but they're not always sinful. When Jesus says to the disciples, I have, yearn- I have yearned to have this meal with you, is epithumia. When Paul talks about yearning for the church, um, it's epithumia. So there are good uses of it. The word itself doesn't automatically mean wicked desire. Although usually, more often than not, that's where it's going. Strong, strong passion or desire, right? Um, and James makes it clear in chapter 4, same word. Word of quarrels and conflicts come from my brothers. It's your desires that wage war within you. Same word. So in James's context, he's saying desire is responsible for sin. Desire is responsible for conflicts, wars, murder, coveting, anger, and everything else. And so, yeah, when, when we want something, either we want a forbidden object or we want a lawful object inordinately with too great of... So... I get done, I head home, I want to unwind. Normally, all things being equal, at the end of a service, I think it's good and lawful for me to rest, but I come home and I find out some of my kids are sick, my wife's having trouble, I need to work and serve. If I grumble and complain, guess what? I wanted the good thing of rest too much. Because when it came time for me to lay it down and, and, and serve, I held on to it. So I can want a good thing, and then I find out I wanted it too much, right? So if I get home and I need to help and then not unwind, we'll find out how much I wanted to rest, right? So that's what I'm talking about. You can want a lawful thing too much. The best explanation I've heard is if you'll sin to get it, sin to keep it, or sin if you won't get it, you want it too much, um, even if it's a lawful thing. This is why people can, can sin over their desire for marriage, their desire for children, desire for a better job. These are all good things, and yet we know people can, can want them too much and then sin as a result of them. And so certainly there are some things that's just wicked. You know, um, I want to, you know, I don't even want to name some of these things. You know, I, I want something that's just, it's a wicked object. It's a corrupt object. Um, and that we just need to, you know, flee from. Other things, we just got to make sure we don't want it too much and, and pray. You know, I think it's partly the temptation with what makes Abram, Abraham's testing with uh, Isaac so amazing. Like, it's natural and right to want to protect your child. Okay, Abraham, what do you value more, Isaac or me? And Abraham valued God more than Isaac. That's, his, his, his desires are rightly ordered at that point. Does that help, or are you still not, not good where you're going? Yeah, no, that's kind of what I was thinking. Okay. Just want some clarification. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and the reason you've got to be careful of this is it's not enough to say, hey, what I want is a good thing. Now, hear people say, I just, I just want my husband and my wife, I just want them to respect me. There's nothing wrong with that. What do you do if you don't get what you want? Now, then we'll find out whether or not you have a sinful desire or not. What, what happens when you don't get the thing you wanted? Because people will tell me, you know, they'll come and talk to me, I just want, and then they'll say some good, I just want my boss to treat me with some level of respect. Hey, that's a great desire. It's a great desire. And what happens when you don't get what you want? Do you entrust yourself as to a faithful creator? Do you call out to God day and night, crying for justice, like the, like the widow who's 
deprived of justice from the corrupt judge, or do you take vengeance in your own hands, or do you grumble and complain? That's when you start. So it's not enough to say, well, look, what I want isn't bad. Okay. Okay, that, we're partway there, but you've got to then say, okay, and do you want it too much, though? Do you, do, you, do you want it too greatly? I mean, Rachel, is it Rachel? No. Yeah, Rachel says, give me children or I die. She gets both. Right? She gets children and then she dies. In childbirth. I don't think that's accidental. I think, I think there's some justice to that. Her desire for children is so great um, that God, okay, I'll take you seriously. Um, and, and I think we're to see that uh, as, as an inordinate desire there. Even as desire for children is a good thing. And, and the Bible treats the barren as, as grieving and suffering, you know, um, as a real blight, as a real uh, burden to bear. You know, it's not, it's not just some social thing. Um, so, okay. Any other? We got ten minutes left. Anything else? Anything else in temptation? I couldn't tell if anyone laughed. Did you guys like the Oscar Wilde quote? I can endure anything except temptation. I liked it. That was the weirdest thing about preaching in an empty room. I didn't realize how much I get back from you guys just from body language. Whether you guys are comfortable following me or not, just even. I don't tell I don't tell jokes oftentimes I'll say something mildly humorous mildly um, amusing and how freely you all respond lets me know if you're tracking me it lets me know whether you're tense whether you're confused I get a lot of feedback from you guys as I'm going through a sermon and I had nothing in that room and so I <laughs> that's that's it you got me exactly um, no it was it was uh, it was weird. It was weird talking in an empty room. Um, so uh, it, was, it was good to be back, even if I was a little flustered this morning. So 10 minutes, come on. Anything else on John or temptation or the crown of life from the week before? We'll open up the crown of life from the week before too. Do you have any favorite verses that you say to yourself to help you overcome temptation? James 4 is a bread and butter. I mean, just turn to James 4. James 4, dovetailed with James 1 on temptation, is really, really foundational. This isn't for all temptation, but for anger, conflict, strife, um, jealousy, bitterness, hostility, interpersonal warfare stuff. Um, James 4 is just... What I said two weeks ago, I, 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 one week ago, I really meant that we our language betrays us. We blame shift. They make me... And so I have to keep reminding myself, no. This is far enough ahead in James we can hit this now, and then you'll have forgotten it in a few months when we actually get there, so it'll be good. I mean, maybe you won't, but... But James 4... What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? Your passions are war within you. You desire, you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you quarrel. You do not have, ask, you do not have because you do not ask. So James says 100% of the time when I'm angry, it's because I want something. And so what I've got to train myself to do is because I want to blame them. That, 
that person over there, right? That, it's not, the problem is not in me. The problem is that numbskull over there. Yeah, Jeremy, what is it you want that you're willing to fight over? <sighs> and, and that passage keeps pointing back. No, 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 no. There's something that I want that's, and you might be a numbskull. You might be, you might be sinning legitimately, right? But why don't I respond with, in grief and sorrow? Why don't I respond in lamentation to God? Why am I responding in anger? It's because I want something. What do I want? What do I, or I demand, I must have. And, and desire and loathing are the flip sides of the same coin. If I, the part of me that wants you to think well of me doesn't want to be embarrassed in front of you, right? So, so, so you can think of I must have and I must not have. It's really just flip sides of the same coin, right? Um, I will not be disrespected. Why? Because I will be honored. I must be honored. I, I will, I, that's what I will have. I will be honored. I will not tolerate dishonor. I will not tolerate you treating me that way. Who do you think I am, right? And so this passage keeps pointing back to me. I remember Stuart Scott just hammering this, like, what is it you want? Name, name the thing you want. Name the thing you want, Jeremy. And so even now when, when, um, when this conflict with my wife and I, frequently um, I'll, I'll make a point, especially if I'm finding, here's another trip, if, if anger, this type of thing is a problem, Begin naming what you wanted. So, you know, I don't want to make a law legally, but I think it's a good thing to be able to do this. You ought to be able to answer this question if your wife asks you. You know, I'll go to Serena, and I'll do exactly what James assumes we're going to do. We minimize the language. He st- notice this. He starts out with verse 1. What causes quarrels and fights? We had a little quarrel. quarrel. We had a little fight. Next verse, he's going to be talking about war and murder. But it was just, I just call it a little quarrel, a little fight. I was getting frustrated irked yeah and so every now and then when i when i talk to serena i'll say hey serena sorry i was snippy with you earlier you know snippy there's a nice biblical term snippy um just say can you uh can you put that into biblical categories for me (laughs) and she doesn't she doesn't do it she usually almost always doesn't do it to try to like rub my face in it it's a check like am i taking it seriously and when i hear that to mean is are you, are you being serious or are you just saying that because you, you know you got caught being, you know, when you say something you know you can't excuse, right? And so I'll take a breath and go, okay, Serena, uh, I'm sorry for making war with you with the words of my tongues. My words are like drawn swords. And rather than protecting you and guarding you, when you threatened the thing I wanted, I attacked you with my tongue to defend the thing that I was worshiping in the moment. Now, that's what's going on in the heart with conflict. Being able, not that you have to say that every time, but being able to see that. So there's just, I mean, there's a number of passages, but this is such a bread and butter passage because every time anger wells up within me, the, the thread to pull on, what do you want? What is it you wanted? You know, and just realize apparently, and, and sometimes you want good things. Like when someone disrespects you or is rude to you and you get angry, like, is it wrong to want people to treat you decently? No, of course not. But if they call the master the devil, what do they call his servants? Like, what did I expect? And so it's fine to be grieved by being dishonored, disrespected, but to become full of wrath? Do I have more rights than Jesus? They can treat Jesus that way, but you won't treat me like that, right? I mean, but that's what you, but you can't really address the hard issue of, of anger, the pride, the self-righteousness, the self-entitlement, to identify what it is you want. And our hearts and our tongues keep wanting us to make the problem out there, they're treating me. They're doing this. They're, but there's something I'm worshiping that's not the living God when I'm getting angry like that, right? There's something that I want too much. So anyway, 
That's one passage I found helpful. Jeremy. I have 1 Corinthians 10 uh, framed in my kitchen. No uh, it's, sort of, it's sort of a, th- yeah. another side to that. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're not promised no temptation. I mean, right. Satan's pretty good at what he does. Yep. Um, <clears throat> but we are promised that when we are tempted, God will provide us a way out. Um, we don't need to succumb to the temptation that we mm-hmm. are threatened with. Yeah. That's huge. No tempta- 1 Corinthians ten thirteen. No temptation has overtaken you. And so crying out, asking God help, because we'll just, uh, there's no point. I'm not, I'm going to fall. I'm going to, you know. And so no, no, God says he will make it bearable and he'll give me a way out. Well, this is, I'll go back to what I said. A wise man once said last Sunday. I, the real question that, that, that is tough in my heart is recognizing there are times I want to fail. I just want an excuse. I don't want to fight. I really don't want to have victory. I want to just give in, yield, and come up with some lame excuse why it's okay. And so the question really is, are you really looking for victory or are you looking for an excuse? Um, and sometimes I think, frequently I think that's what's going on in our heart. Because fighting's hard. <laughs> Okay, see you all hopefully Friday.